internally, I find that both writing and acting actually can be really good ways to develop empathy, to try and see things from somebody else's point of view, the point of view of somebody who's, who's a little different from you. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Messina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Hello, and welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kai DeJesus, and I'll be your host. Today, I'll be talking to Harley Takagi Kaner, co-creator, director, and sound designer for the award-winning Penumbra Podcast, and the creator of the show, Edges, both of which feature stories about queer people at the forefront. They also dance and act, taking on roles in the show, such as Sasha Wire and the Prana on the Penumbra Podcast. Additionally, they are an award-winning drag and performance artist, as well as a teacher. Harley, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, you wrote up a whole like intro about me and yeah. it's weird to hear. Yeah, <laughs> so I completely understand that. <laughs> and I want to start with a question for those listening that aren't really well acquainted with like queer issues and queer voices and stories. Why is this important? I think for a lot of people, it's important because historically, uh, those are voices, particularly in storytelling, that we haven't heard a lot of. You know, maybe it's not fair to say particularly in storytelling. I think in general, uh, voices <laughs> that we we haven't gotten chances the chance to hear so much. So I think part of it is for a queer audience, um, it can be really meaningful and I think sometimes life-changing to hear a story that feels more reflective of your personal experience. So I think that's a part of it. Um, and then I think another part of it is that even for a not queer audience, you know, it's important to hear the perspectives of people who are not necessarily exactly like you. Okay. So I know that a possible counter argument that could come up with this is that, oh, we want queer people and not queer people to be the same. Why can't we just treat their stories equally? Why do we have specifically queer stories? Why is that important? I guess the answer to that would be, again, looking at it sort of from a historical perspective, we have so much balancing out left to do. You know, we have a long history of not having these stories be centered. Um, and so it's nice to have them highlighted. And just to bring up like more about the importance of queer stories, I think a lot of the fans of the Penumbra podcast, this was an integral part of coming out or after coming out, many of them being like pretty young when they started listening to it. Yes. I remember even on Tumblr, someone said, I named myself after Juno because of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, multiple people seem to have done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what responsibilities do you think you have as sort of the forefront of queer storytelling? Oh my lord. Uh, I don't think I would call myself that. Um, I mean, you know, but Kai, it's an interesting thing and it's a tough thing because you don't, or at least I didn't go into this thinking, all right, I'd like to be at the forefront of queer <laughs> storytelling and I would like to take on a platform and a responsibility in which I speak for all queer people. Like that is just so not <laughs> the case, at least for me. And, you know, I, I don't know, this is fairly common knowledge. I don't know if you happen to know it or not, but um, when we started the podcast, we didn't even intend for it to be a podcast. It was just a thing we were doing with some friends for fun. 
because Kevin and I wanted to work on some stories together and um, we, we just are queer people. And I feel okay talking about this because he's talked about it very publicly, but part of it was that he was very newly out at the time that uh, we started creating the Penumbra. I had been out for a long time, at least um, as queer for years and years before we started. So I was very, like, very comfortable with that being a part of my identity, but it was new to him. Um, And so when we decided that we wanted to, you know, write some stories together, um, it was important to him to like incorporate that because he was exploring that part of himself. And then once we had created a couple of episodes, we were like, oh, wouldn't it be a lark if we put it up on, you know, iTunes or whatever. And then very surprisingly to us, we kind of stumbled into an audience, but it wasn't really our intention. So I do think that's kind of important to note because I do feel like certainly at least people perceive me to have a really big responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe that's true and maybe it's not. It's a really interesting thing because it is not one that I requested or signed up for. Um, And like, I don't necessarily want to take this in a negative direction, but like that can be very overwhelming because people do sometimes seem to come with the expectation of me or the show speaking for them personally and their very specific personal experiences. And then Mm -hmm. if we don't, sometimes it makes people really angry. They come with the promise of representation and then they're like, you haven't represented me specifically. So you're hurting me, you know? Um, And I bet that feels very bad to people. Uh, But also, um, as I've sort of said before, it's a lot (laughs) as one person or even as two people to feel like you bear the responsibility of being an entire community, which you can't be. Um, And really more honestly, we are trying to tell the stories that are interesting to us and that resonate for us. And because we are queer people, those are overwhelmingly queer stories. And also because that's what we would like to see more, you know, Um, because most stories are not that. And we're like, wouldn't it be interesting and unexplored and make us happy to tell these stories, which is a lot of why we do it. Because I know, I mentioned Tumblr, Tumblr and just like the younger queer community can be brutal. I remember uh, Dream Daddy was pretty hated on and like. Yes, I remember that. How do you just like deal with that? Just like you didn't really, you just wanted to tell stories. Now you have sort of like people put this responsibility on you to tell like stories that represent them. How do you deal with that pressure? That's a good question. And I have struggled with it a lot for a really long time. And I used to, I'm I'm not saying I'm like ascendant and I've moved on from this, but I used (laughs) to really, really take it very personally and be very hurt and very angry. And like, why don't people understand? Like, I can't do everything for everyone. And I just wanted to tell stories for myself. And why are they expecting me, you know, to, to represent each specific person? And honestly, I think more recently, I've just kind of moved away from looking at what people say, which is not to say that, you know, I think I'm immune to criticism or that I can't do anything wrong. But at a certain point, like, the people's reactions can get so overwhelming because there's only one of me and so many of them and they Mm -hmm. all have different perspectives and they all want something different. And at a certain point, you kind of just need to walk away and be like, look, I've done my best to take various perspectives into account. I've made the storytelling decisions that I'm going to make. And like, I, 
I just, I can't please everybody and I can't take it personally if it's not what they want. At some point, like, yeah, taking criticism is important, especially as an artist, but like at some point it's like, I'm just one person. There's only like, and there's so right. many of you, right? Right, yeah. there's, so, there's so many people. And like, I gotta produce the next episode. Like I can't, I cannot, you know, sit and look through every piece of criticism I've mm-hmm. ever gotten and change and respond to all of it because then I would never make the next episode ever. Of course. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it was really, really interesting to me how you mentioned that. You just wanted to tell stories. This was just kind of like, oh, let's make a thing. And then let's put it on iTunes. Oh, we have an audience. So like, (laughs) do you ever feel like you, like, especially in the early seasons, because I remember you had to re-record the first episode of, um, for those who aren't familiar with the show, Juno Steal the Murderous Mask. Did you ever feel like you were flying by the seat of your pants when- Always. Yeah. Always. And still- (laughs) And like, I, I do think like, you know, we obviously we've gained a certain amount of traction and like a certain, a certain amount of stability, but I do think from the outside, like people still think we are a much bigger deal than we are, you know, Mm -hmm. that we make a lot more money than we do, that we have a bigger team than we do. Like we are still absolutely just scraping by because like, particularly when you look at online success and people can't hear my air quotes but I'm doing very yeah. air quotes. <laughs> um, yeah particularly when you're working with something online right and the podcast itself is free so like mm-hmm. we we do have a patreon so some people decide kindly to pledge to it and you know pay money but you know 99.8 percent of the people who listen to the show are not paying money for it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just going out there into the ether, which is a great thing. And I do like that the people who can't afford to pay for it are kind of subsidizing it for the people who can't. But the fact is that people look around, they're like, oh my gosh, all these listeners, they must be doing great. But like, we're not, (laughs) I mean, we're fine, we're fine. But like, you know, this is not a huge enterprise. Um, And yeah, so like, I do always feel like I'm flying by the seat of my pants. I'm like, oh, are we going to even get the next episode by out the door? I mean, obviously we've gotten better at stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, but it, it's, we always feel like we're running behind. We always feel like there aren't enough of us to get the things we need to get done. We always feel like we're scrambling. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Always Cause if you look on the team page, you could probably count the entire team on like one or two hands. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when it comes to the actual, like, you know, we, we have quite a lot of actors, especially because, you know, we've got some recurring actors, but we also have some people who will like just come in for one voice and then we don't, you know, necessarily work with them a ton again. So we do have a lot of actors, but like in terms of the actual crew, the people who are consistently working on the show, that's five people, you know, and only, only my co-creator Kevin and I work on it full time right now. Mm-hmm. And it's relatively new that even we are working on it full-time. The other three have full-time jobs and they just do this in their like off moments. Yeah. Um, so like, I, I do think a lot of times people are like, oh, well, they're doing, they're doing great. You know, but it's <laughs> like, it's a, it's a scary thing. <laughs> so do you ever feel like overwhelmed by just like these huge or bigger companies like doing more, especially I, I'll call it the gentrification of podcasts with like yes. these bigger people with like big, name actors who could really be working on like movies. I believe Tessa Thompson from the Thor movies started working on a podcast. Yes. And my thought was like, oh wow, why don't you just go and work on a movie? This is this is for the indie people, you know? Yeah. Does that ever get overwhelming? That's a good question. I it's it's an interesting thing because it, it kind of seems that like 
what mainstream media has decided as like, oh, podcasts are kind of a really good, cheap testing ground for IPs. And like, you know, they'll either buy a podcast and then produce it as a TV show or a movie or something, or they'll try out producing a podcast to see if they can gain traction and an audience and then move to a more expensive kind of production, like a TV show or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's what's going on with like mainstream productions moving into podcasting. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely roll my eyes about it, but like, it doesn't need to affect me really. Like they are not, the people who are listening to my show are not choosing whether to listen to my show or something, you know, funded by Disney. Like it's not, there's not really a direct competition there in any way. I don't know. I mean, like, and there's like, and as much as I complain and it is scary about feeling like we are flying by the seat of our pants and we never have enough money and we never have enough people. Something I got to say, I really appreciate is like the total autonomy of being an indie production. Like we're not beholden to anybody. That's why we can tell the stories we want to tell in exactly the way we want. We can make a season as long or as short as we want. We can make an episode as long or as short as we want. We don't have to pass by any censors, any producers, nothing. We do, we do what we want to do. Um, And I'd rather make no money and get to do that. I don't know if I've said this in the actual episode yet, but I remember listening to the, to the Penumbra podcast in like my teens. And I, I'd, I'd call the Penumbra podcast one of like the starter podcasts that you get into. So it's like right <laughs> after you welcome to Night Vale, right after you listen to like King Falls I Am, you start listening to Penumbra podcast. Um, and you've been in the industry for like, I estimation like four years. How has like podcasting, especially indie podcasting changed in that time? There's a lot more of it. Um, and I do think that one of the reasons that we've been, I guess I would say relatively successful mm-hmm. um, is because we got in when we did. Like, I think, you know, because we were kind of coming on the scene in like early 2016. And I almost kind of feel like that was the last moment that you could get in with a podcast that wasn't super high production value or super professionally done which if you've listened to the original murderous mask (laughs) you know that it was not the high production value (laughs) uh which is why we redid it and like it was I, i feel like five or six years ago is a time when people still had maybe a little bit more patience for something to be not as as highly produced uh-huh and then we sort of already had an audience with us you know by the time there started to be a million other podcasts right. i mean and now every now everybody has a podcast you know yeah. and 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 i understand why in part because when it comes to media i can hardly think of a, a lower budget you know type of media to produce like I guess you could write a book or you could like paint a painting but like those things tend not to be able to spread as much as like a podcast can and and so you you do get a certain amount of bang for your buck so like I I get why you know people are producing them more and more so yeah one of the biggest changes there's a ton more of them it is very funny to me that I look around in like indie fiction podcasting and I'm like these are all gay all of these all of these podcasts are gay every single one it's like it's kind of like you're not allowed to make a fiction podcast that isn't gay like I feel like you would be frowned upon if you tried it um 
And I will not take credit for that. And I will not even hypothesize about why that is the case. I will merely say that when we started, it was not the case. And now it seems to be the case. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is a really interesting notion because I remember thinking about the two podcasts that even mentioned, King Fault Am and Beltham Nightfall, they do feature a queer person at the forefront of the story, even if it's not revealed to like 60 episodes in. (laughs) Um, I think I think at the time we started, yeah, Night Vale was definitely already gay by the time we oh, yeah. started. I don't know if King Falls I Am was already gay. I'm not super familiar with it. Uh, as someone that listened to it, I believe it was episode 69 where, if you know the characters, Sammy Stevens, who is the main character, yeah. he says, oh, I had a fiance, his name was Jack, and that's when he came out. So when did that episode come out? Oh, that was maybe... Question. 2018 2019 oh okay so that's later right that's not when that's not when we were showing up yeah so that counts now but it sort of wasn't the case then yeah Um, I believe that was like around season two so you'd already started to hit your stride at that point yeah um and and um yeah Night Vale was already gay um but like there were I feel like there were other shows that weren't gay at the time and got gayer Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I'm not trying to take credit for it. I'm just saying that like, it wasn't the norm at the time that we started and it definitely seems to be now, which is very funny to me. Um, and also really funny to me because I generally am not one to like stick up for straight people, but I do (laughs) kind of feel a little bad that I feel like if you were a straight person and you wanted to make a podcast where like the main characters were straight, people would be like, get out of here. No, I felt that. Because, like, yeah, like, one, I believe a huge draw, um, speaking as someone that was, I guess, quote-unquote, part of the culture in that time period. Yeah. Like, you got into podcasts because you were queer. Yes, totally, yeah. totally. And speaking of that, so, for those of people that don't listen to the show, some of the characters can feature genderqueer noir detectives solving intergalactic mysteries and, like, bisexual polyamorous lizard scientists try and survive (laughs) and like in this world where ellie from the last of us was quote-unquote too much for being a lesbian do you ever feel like you're doing too much or like how do you like deal with that especially with i guess catering to a straight audience do you even cater to a straight audience no i don't know like anybody straight who listens to the show except maybe like our moms (laughs) um (laughs) um yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. But, but also it's like, the, the fact is that like the space that we inhabit is completely different from the space that mainstream media inhabits. I mean, it's just, there's just no overlap. There's no, like we, like I said, we don't go through networks. We don't go through producers. Like it's right. just, a com- it's kind of a really insular community, I think. And so like, I don't know. I, in a way, like, it's almost such a bubble that I just don't even feel like the same rules apply to us. Right. Because it's like, like Mm -hmm. I said, in the space in which I exist, I will primarily get criticism for not being queer enough. I have maybe, maybe twice ever received criticism for being too gay and like when I get that kind of criticism I'm like who are you how did you get in here like why were you even listening to this this is very confusing all of the criticism 
I get is from the queer community because that's who's listening to the mm -hmm. show and their interests are make it as queer as possible, represent as many different kinds of people as possible. And that's what they want to see. Their interest is not to keep it conservative and to keep it mainstream. Right. So, so no, I, I don't, you know, even though I am aware that there is a whole other world out there with a lot more money involved, uh, where having a lesbian character might be like, oh my goodness, that's just not my world at all. That isn't the space that I live in. Do you think you could represent all like queer community? Do you think it's even your place to? Because I know like that's also a no. debate. <laughs> no, absolutely <laughs> not. It's not possible. It's not my place. And it wouldn't be that interesting you know if like that was how I created characters right it's like let's make sure that we hit every single like micro identity like that wouldn't I don't know that wouldn't be interesting especially because if nothing else like one of the things that is interesting to me in storytelling is like how do different people with a shared identity interact with each other like instead of feeling like okay well I need to have um a cis gay man and a trans gay man and a cis bi guy and a trans you know and like make sure that I check right. everything off like it's kind of interesting to me to be like what if you know there's two best friends and one of them comes out as turns out to be bi and then like years later the other one is like oh my god I'm bi. Wait, but that was his thing. I can't be bi. Like, mm -hmm. you know, because I think that's, it, it's just kind of interesting how people react to stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so it is often more interesting to me to have multiple people of the same identity rather than spreading it out and making sure we hit everything. Um, and yes, as you said, it's absolutely not my place. And I don't know why anyone would want me to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. I know Slash assumed that the Penumbra podcast is a very queer workspace. And uh, just like a, an aside for people listening that aren't aware of the, of the term, cisgender refers to someone that is not transgender. So how do you make, Slash, how do you make sure that a workspace is inclusive for queer people? I mean, it's funny because, so, you know, going back to the origins of the show, it was just you know, me and Kevin and some friends from college because mm -hmm. um, I had been in the theater club in college. And so um, like several years after we graduated, I was like, oh, let's get some of the gang back together and like, you know, we'll do a little acting thing. Yes. And that's kind of where it started. I did not say, let me get a bunch of queer people. <laughs> um, so it was, it was literally like at the time that we started, um, it was these are the people that I had a fun time with and am friends with from college and they live in the area. I'm going to mm -hmm. invite them over to the house. Like that is how this started. And some of those people identified as queer at the time. Some of them didn't. And the really funny thing is that we kind of have never really cast or hired people because they were queer and yet they all seem to be not everybody but almost everybody involved in the show yeah is queer. and then like at that point I mean I I don't know what kind of spaces you inhabit but if you've ever inhabited a space that is 90 to 95 percent queer you kind of don't need to do a lot of work around making it feel like because that is now the dominant culture in your right. in your group you know mm -hmm. like anybody who is 
cishet is like, oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> you know? Like they, I think they feel a little bit like a fish out of water, if anything. Um, and oddly enough, I have found that I, I used to be almost because again, I was like coming from the outside world where like queer people are, minor are a minority. Mm -hmm. And so I think in some ways I was almost kind of like not welcoming to people who weren't queer who would join the team. I was right. like, I didn't make it particularly easy for him, for, for them. Um, and that is not nice. And so if anything, I've kind of had to work on like, let's not like be, I don't know, un unwelcoming to people who aren't queer in the interest of making a queer friendly space. Yeah, so what does that look like? Just like shifting to a more welcoming space. Okay, well, here's an example of the kind of thing I'm, I'm thinking of. It was like, we would do like an icebreaker or something. I mean, this is way back in like 2016 right. or something, but like we would do like an icebreaker at the beginning of a rehearsal or something. And I might say something like, okay, go around the circle and like everyone say the gayest thing about you. Okay. Which is like fun if you're queer and maybe not fun if you're not, <laughs> because then you might feel kind of trapped about like, oh my God, what can I say? Like, is it going to be offensive? Like, you know, um, yeah. and, and then kind of looking back, I mean, you know, and I sort of grew up a little bit during that time, you know, this is me going from being 25 to being 31. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is not actually a very nice thing for the person in charge to do. It's not right. nice. Uh, it probably didn't feel good. And I, I can't, you know, that that's me coming from thinking this is just a group of friends hanging out. And so I can do whatever I want. And like, if I'm with a group of friends, I am kind of like aggressively queer at people because it's right. fine. You're just with friends. But like when you're actually in charge of something and it's sort of professional, like that becomes not appropriate anymore. So weirdly enough, I have had to learn how to be inclusive to straight people. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. We've come, we've come a long way in terms of supporting queer people and representing them in media. Totally. But we also have a lot of ways to go. Absolutely. So when do you think we're quote unquote done in representing queer people in the art and media? When do you think we've hit equality and how do we achieve that? We will know we're there when there's queer and trans people in Disney cartoons. That's, that is like my bar, like, because Disney is going to be the last, the most conservative, the most mainstream to get on board. And if we can get stuff there, that actually right. feels good. If we get like a gay Disney princess, like we will, we will be somewhere. Um, I don't know. I don't like what a what a hard question. Like with progress, how do you ever know when you're like we're done? We uh, we did it. Honestly, yeah. don't you think in a certain way maybe the danger is to ever think that you're done and you did it? Like, isn't that? I, I feel like that's something that has been a big conversation around racism recently, or at least I've been thinking about it. Certainly, that like a big part of the problem was people thinking, oh, we're all set. We yes. solved it. And, and that was, that was one of the biggest problems was people thinking, no, we're, we're past that. We're, mm -hmm. we're post-racism. We're in a post-racial world. And like, then they thought they didn't have to do anything when in fact they right. had to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think that straight people could do to just like, for the, like in the interest of being like a straight or cisgender ally, like mm -hmm. what can they do to further representation? 
I do think that is a tough one because I think on the one hand, people will say like, you know, you can't, if you're a straight person, like it's privileged and it's myopic to just only tell stories about straight people. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think then also sometimes there's a concern about like, should a straight person be writing about queer experiences like is that their place and I think you can always ask the same question when it when it comes to something like um writing about or representing different races right right it's like if you are not of that race should you go out of your way to you know try and give more representation or is there not is it not your place you should stay in your lane etc um I think that is a very tricky one I guess where I would land on it is like yeah, I think people who aren't of an identity should try, should try. Because I think that internally, I find that both writing and acting actually can be really good ways to develop empathy, to try and see things from somebody else's point of view, the point of view of somebody who's, who's a little different from you. I think that can be really beneficial. So yeah, I think as far as storytellers, creators, like Totally. If you're straight, like try your hand at, at a queer story um, or at including queer characters. I think that's awesome. And I don't know, in terms of allyship in general, I think, I mean, something that I really appreciate, I guess, th- this is going to be totally personal though, because I, I don't think that all queer people feel this way. But for me personally, um, I really appreciate when people who are straight or cis do a lot of listening um, and are genuinely interested in gaining a better understanding of my experience. Um, And now this also, this is a me thing and it definitely won't be the case for all queer people, but I actually really appreciate when they ask questions. If it's, if it's genuine and if it's in good Mm -hmm. faith, you know, if like when my cis friends ask me questions about what it's like to be trans, um and and what that experience is like um that makes me feel really good and feel really seen I can understand other people might be like don't ask me those personal questions yeah definitely. you know so I'm definitely not speaking for everyone here I will just say that for me I really appreciate it um so listening is a really good thing I think you really can't go wrong with like seeking out um queer voices and experiences and right. and just trying to take that in so a lot of people talk about the arts as having quote unquote made it or not made it. Mm-hmm. Do you think you've made it? <laughs> um, honestly, yeah. Like in the sense that I can basically support myself making my art. Mm-hmm. Um, not well, like <laughs> I probably should pick up a part-time gig at some point soon. Uh, but like, you know, I'm staying afloat. Um, and in a way that's the dream. Right. Um, and, and I also am like developing a very complicated relationship with the concept of like fame, I guess, or success, because I'm such a, like, you know, I, I know that there are people for whom my show is really, really like important and a big part of their lives. And I'm not trying to minimize that, but like, overall when it comes to the sort of global population that's a really small group of people like a really 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 small group of people so you know I may be a celebrity in the minds of a couple of people but like a small group of people um and 
even that has come to be incredibly overwhelming to me. Like when I was younger, I was like, I want to be the most famous person. I want to be the most successful person. I want like, I want to be a household name. I want everyone to know who I am. And now I'm like, that would be awful. That would be (laughs) awful because like even, even like the tiniest little micro niche taste of fame that I have had has at times been incredibly painful and not worth it at all. And so like, I don't, in a lot of ways, I actually don't want to get bigger than I am. So thank you so much for joining me on the show. I do have two more questions for you. Okay. And that's what thought leaders do you follow in the news or in social media? And what books, podcasts, and other media do you suggest to leaders like yourself or just in general? Oh my Lord. Um, okay. I'm not going to have good, um, good advice for thought leaders, except that, okay, this is, I'm partly talking about this because this is all I talk about right now. Um, (laughs) I am currently, um, doing a 200 hour yoga teacher training. And Mm -hmm. so I'm getting really immersed in yoga philosophy, which, is actually in a certain way, I actually do think is really beneficial to me as a leader. And one book that um, I've been reading is called um, Yoga for a World Out of Balance. And it is primarily a philosophy book. Um, And it's a lot about how to be a good and ethical person in the world, which is something that is that I struggle with a lot, like as a leader, as a person in charge of things, because sometimes I worry that, um, being a good person and being a good leader can sometimes be at odds. Uh, mm-hmm. cause in general in life, you don't really want to tell people what to do as a leader. Right. You kind of have to, um, <laughs> and yeah. So anyway, I, I do actually, I don't know if it's directly related, uh, but broadly speaking, I think it is. I, I do recommend this book yoga for a world out of balance. And yeah, it's a lot about how stuff is connected and you can't help being kind of a global citizen and you, you cannot act as if you exist in isolation. On behalf of everyone at the Vasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU for allowing us to use their facilities and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership on Instagram at Vasita Leaders and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.